Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get right to our next guest, Alicia Levine. She's a chief strategist and managing director for BNY Mellon Investment Management, about $2.2 trillion of assets under management. Alicia is speaking today on the financial markets panel at the Engage Undergraduate Investment Conference 2021. So we're fortunate to get her time. Alicia, a lot of the discussion from market participants really over the last several weeks in particular has been inflation and the impact on financial assets and where you want to be uh, with your portfolio and your investments. Love to get your thoughts right here, right now on inflation and, and kind of how that's factoring into your calculus. So that's great. Thanks for having me almost at the noon hour. Exciting panel today. Um, look, I think that is that's the question of the moment. And I think what better example of the problem with inflation and inflation risk than the Suez Canal, where we saw that giant tanker sitting there for about eight days, choking up supply chains. And today we got a PPI number, you know, 4%, 4.2% year over year growth on PPI prices, much higher inflation and prices than expected for goods inputs. And I think we are on a path for the next few months of much higher inflation reads than, uh, than we would have thought. Even though the Fed is telling us not to worry, I think the prints are going to be higher. So there are two issues. One, is inflation coming? And two, what do central banks do about it? And the two are separate. But I think the issue of inflation is real. And I think it's going to last longer than a couple of months. And we spent so much money on it already, the pandemic, in terms of stimulus. But as I look at food inflation and gasoline prices, you know, it doesn't matter if they're coming from a lower uh, comparison. These are still making up a much higher percentage of the incomes of the people who are hit hardest during the pandemic. Are we going to see do we need to see more federal government spending in terms of stimulus? So I don't think you're going to be able to get more stimulus for the kind of pandemic-related issues. We had $1.9 trillion, as you know, passed very quickly. And if you think about how much money is coming to the U.S. economy, think about the timing of this. Of the 1.9, 1.2 is going to be plowed into the economy, $1.2 trillion by early September. So that's $1.2 trillion in six months. That's absolutely extraordinary. And that can be inflationary. Um, the question is, do labor markets really adjust quickly to get people back into, you know, as we reopen, demand increases, demand for services increases, can the labor markets keep up? And that's really the big question, right? Do people decide to stay home and collect their unemployment benefits because it's about $23 an hour through September 6th? Or do people go back to, to you know, to working? And that's, those, are, those are tough questions. But it really is stacked towards higher risk of inflation in the very short term. All right. So is it the higher risk of inflation in the short term, Alicia? Is it, how does that kind of coloring where you guys at BNY Mellon are looking for opportunities? So this is really a, a great question because, again, the two parts are in their higher inflation, we would say, yes, it's coming, and two, what does the Fed do about it, right? Two different things because that's how it affects the economy. 
So the Fed has tried with every ounce of every you know, FOMC member to say that they are strategically patient and will wait to see um, until we get into 2022 whether, and 2023 whether we've recovered in the labor market and they expect inflation to normalize as we exit 2021. Data will be noisy, and we expect them actually not to sit on their hands. We think that the market believes that this is going to happen. Uh, in addition, the inflation curve, investors, investors actually are buying the Fed's story, which is you're going to get higher inflation in the short term and then lower inflation in the out years. And that's an inverted inflation curve. That's very unusual. We have an inverted curve because people see it short term. The big risk here is whether inflation expectations become unmoored, right? Whether they become unanchored, whether it lasts longer than a couple of months of April, May, June, and whether therefore future expectations go higher. And that's the big risk that would change Fed policy. So that's where you are. You know, we're buying the story for now, but the real numbers are going to be coming through and higher than expected. There's so much money um, in U.S. retirement accounts tied up in stocks, though, and any action from the Fed would not only work to, um, you know, tame inflation, but also probably push the equity market down in a pretty rough way. Is the Greenspan put alive and well? <laughs> Look, I, I think I think what the the overall tone of the market, except for the last couple of weeks that cyclicals are, are the way to play this, right? So ultimately, when you have higher inflation, financials outperform, energy outperforms, industrials and materials outperform. And we think while you will have periods of consolidation in yield, we think the move on yield is ultimately going to be higher, although not spiky, right? We had really spike. We had 85 basis points in the first quarter. We think the bulk of the big move is behind us. But there will be moments of doubt, and there will be moments of doubt when we get some of those nasty inflation prints. So we still think the cyclical sectors are a way to insulate portfolios from some of the damage that higher rates can do from inflation. I think you need to think about your long-duration assets, which are the speculative tech assets. Um, those may have a tougher time, and we know they have had tougher times as we saw yield spike sometimes 8 to 10 basis points in a day. I think investors should be conscious that those risks remain. And I think the market is somewhat sniffing out, could there be a policy mistake here, right? Will the Fed sit on its hands so long that it may get runaway inflation? We're not seeing it in the numbers yet, but you're starting to have that conversation with investors. So I'd still be in cyclicals. I still like the small caps. You are going to have moments where, you know, your growth stocks will outperform. And we think you should be invested in those profitable growth stocks that have increasing earnings and, and, and not just trading on 40 times revenue. And we would use bond market volatility to start and grow positions in those stocks. What do you think about the U.S. versus Europe? You mentioned that $1.2 trillion of U.S. stimulus is going to be into the economy by September. As far as I know, the, in comparison, paltry $750 billion European rescue package or billion euro European rescue package, only 13% of that is going to go out to the countries that need it by this summer. Are they going to have to do more? Or are we going to see the European uh, assets continue to underperform? 
So it's an interesting question. I, I think there may be pressure for the Europeans to do more on the fiscal side. Um, you know, the, the ECB is, is absolutely adamant that it will not allow the euro to appreciate against the mm. dollar anymore. anymore. Oh, it looks like we lost Alicia there, unfortunately. But it was great to have her for the time being. Alicia Levine, chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. We heard earlier from Rob Kaplan, Texas Fed president, out of the Engage Undergraduate Investment Conference. Um, that's David Kudla's conference there in Michigan. Jeffrey Rosenberg is also there on the Financial Markets Panel. He's a portfolio manager at the BlackRock Systemic Multi-Strategy Fund. Jeff, great to get you on the program. Um, I wonder, considering what we heard from uh, from Kaplan, how... How supportive of this rally do you expect the Fed to remain? They want to obviously get us back to full employment. They want to, well, their stated goal is to, to, to fight, I guess, inflation in some ways, but or keep price stability, maintain price stability. But now they're trying to boost inflation, and it's having a great effect on financial assets as well. Yeah, you know, you, you, you talk about the Fed um, fighting inflation. This is a Fed that's fighting inflation from below, too little inflation. And the implication for supporting the rally is that is providing a, a historic amount of accommodation, you know, first for uh, the fighting the for fighting COVID, but then the second order impact of COVID on inflation is that it is making it that much harder for the Fed to achieve its its new policy objective. And so the Fed is absolutely here in a new operating mode, and that operating mode has removed preemptive Fed tightening for tightening conditions in the labor market. They basically said, we're only going to look at one side of the mandate when it comes to tightening. We're not going to look at labor markets as an indication that we should be pulling back from uh, our accommodation. And that's absolutely very supportive in terms of highly accommodative financial conditions, which supports Jeff, uh, the rally to your question. The, the reason I ask is that this morning on our MLive blog, um, Wes Goodman wrote a story saying the bull run has years to go thanks to our beloved baby boomers. You would have thought that they shifted into bonds at the end of their you know, working life, but estimates show retirement accounts of U.S. households own 30% of the nation's corporate equity. And so, um, you know, with this entire generation invested in stocks, the Fed has no other choice but to remain supportive. At least that's how the, his theory goes. Yeah, I, look, the, the, the Fed is going to measure its degree of supportiveness based on its economic outcomes and its economic objectives. Financial conditions are part of that now in, in, the, in the post first GFC crisis environment and certainly in the post COVID uh, crisis environment. So it's not a stated aim, but it's a, it's a means to achieving that aim. And so that keeps the Fed very much supportive. We haven't had a situation, however, where the Fed has been challenged by potential conflict within its objectives. All of the objectives have lined up on the same side. Too little inflation, you need more accommodation. Too little growth, you need more accommodation. Tightening of financial conditions, you need more accommodation. The future will be 
one where the Fed may see a period where some of those objectives are no longer all lining up in the same way. And the uncertainty for the market will be, well, how are they going to balance and manage the conflict between those objectives? So far, the Fed has been pretty clear to say, we're going to preference financial conditions and achieving inflation over any of the other concerns, concerns such as financial stability on a long-run basis in terms of too much accommodation or asset price bubbles, financial stability concerns, all of those have been secondary. So that's where you get to these kind of statements that the Fed will always be there. I think we're going to be perhaps in an environment where in a rising inflationary environment that isn't transitory, the Fed faces a different challenge. The market will face that challenge. But right now that remains a pretty uncertain call as to whether or not we're going to get to that point. For now, the Fed has been able to remain entirely accommodative because they face no conflict in their multiple objectives. All right, Jeff, given where we think the Fed is, where are you guys at BlackRock finding value here? Well, value in value. Uh, you know, I, I'm on the fixed income side, but we certainly take a broad market perspective in terms of in, investing. And in many of the, the investment strategies uh, we run, we run cross market. Uh, you know, a, a long period of falling real interest rates, reflective of secular stagnation, falling term premium have certainly benefited. Uh, the secular growth story, um, to the point where valuations have become secondary. Uh, and now there's a real challenge uh, in the market around that viewpoint. It starts with the fundamental top-down macro debate that we were just having in terms of, does the Fed face a future environment where they are achieving their objectives? But along the way and where we are right now is that has significantly changed the relative value in some of the growth stock story versus the value stock story, where that rising potential of breaking out of 20, 30 years of falling interest rates, secular stagnation, starts to benefit that, that value perspective. On the fixed income side of the value perspective, um, there's uh, not much value left uh, spreads uh, across our credit markets headlines in, in, in Bloomberg yep. highlighting you know tight levels of high yield spread predating the global financial crisis going back to 2007 so it's hard to find value uh, in right. the fixed income market the, the way that you can still find some value in the equity market all right Jeff thank you so much for joining us we always appreciate getting your perspective here Jeffrey Rosenberg portfolio manager of the BlackRock systematic multi-strategy fund uh, at BlackRock Molly Schutz joins us, Bloomberg technology reporter. Molly, um, did it ever look like the unions were going to take this? Hi. Um, I think in the very beginning, it was a little bit close. It was hard to see maybe which way it would go. But as soon as they started counting the vote, Amazon quickly pulled ahead. They spent about three hours counting the votes yesterday, and Amazon was ahead um, at the close yesterday evening. And this morning, just in the past hour and a half or so, um, Amazon pulled even further ahead. And so now, like you said, they have a, a large majority of the of the votes here. And it doesn't look like there's any way that the, the union side could could catch up at this point. 
Molly, what do you think both sides, uh, again here, Amazon and the unions, will learn from what happened in Alabama? Is this just the beginning of what will likely be more efforts to unionize parts of Amazon.com? It will definitely be interesting to see. It's, you know, given the fact that you know, Amazon did win here. This is kind of the status quo going forward with them. They've always been anti-union. This was a hard effort from the beginning for the um, the retail union here in, in Alabama. But given the Biden administration's support for unionization and the, the support for workers' rights to unionize, they could get a little extra federal support in the movement across the country and try this again in other uh, in other factories at Amazon and other warehouses and factories that Amazon has across the country. Molly, to some extent, you are you're a tech reporter, but you're also kind of a gig worker reporter, right? Because <laughs> a lot of these tech companies rely on gig workers, and there's been some push for change. But in the big headline cases, the gig worker seems to have lost out. I'm thinking about Uber in California, yep. which is, I think, doubly interesting because it's a, le- a really an historically left-leaning state, right? And they still voted against giving those workers the same kind of rights that salaried workers have. Why is this? I mean, well, the, the, yeah, the gig worker situation is, is, is challenging and, and interesting for, for many reasons. I mean, in, in this case, these are – I wouldn't say that you can categorize them necessarily as gig workers at the factory. They have – you know, they do have some uh, – they have regular hours and – you know, they're basically part-time or even full-time True. workers. So it's a little bit of a, of a different situation here. True. True. So, Molly, it's, um, you know, 1.3 million uh, employees uh, at Amazon. This is – it's just an area that the, I would think unions can't ignore. So what's the next steps, do we think? Well, they're already making um, noise about challenging this uh, this this vote here, saying that uh, Amazon, you know, put pressure on on workers in mandatory information sessions, uh, trying to, you know, it's maybe not explicitly threaten them, but definitely lean hard on reasons why they should not join the union. And they cited Amazon putting up a mailbox on the site of the warehouse. Um, as kind of a threatening gesture to workers. So they're definitely already saying that they're going to um, go after, you know, to, to, to challenge this vote. So I have no doubt that there will be a whole series of, of legal challenges and issues going forward from this. So this probably isn't just a, an open and shut vote today. Right. So we'll see some more challenges to that going forward for sure. All right, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really a fascinating uh, story developing here at Amazon.com. Molly Schutz, U.S. Technology Editor, uh, talking to us about Bloomberg again. I'm, I'm sorry, talking to us about Amazon. And uh, it's interesting here, The um, in Alabama, uh, Al- uh, Amazon wins this round against uh, the union. Brad Repke joins us. He's a senior wealth advisor from Mainstay Capital Management. They have $3.5 billion worth of assets under management out of Michigan. But uh, more importantly, he's been working on the 13th annual Engage Undergraduate Investments Investment Conference. Uh, as Paul was saying, it is the largest collegiate investment conference in North America, and it is also sponsored by the Gate David Kudla Foundation. So, um, Brad, tell us about the the point of the the conference. What are the goals of the event? Yeah, good morning, Paul and Matt. This is Brad, and I'm uh, very thankful to be a part of the process. You know, David Kudla is our CEO of Mainstay Capital Management, really has made this conference 
uh, the pillar of his ongoing philanthropic endeavors. And what we're able to do is attract the best and the brightest minds all across North America, North America and even uh, globally, students from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, uh, Duke, Paul, I know, which is uh, yes, a little bit of uh, <laughs> your alma mater to, to, um, for your MBA. Uh, but bring them in, right, and have them compete in a real live stock pitch competition. This isn't, um, you know, a, a false or, or a made-up company, but they're able to pick uh, any, any company that's uh, public. They can pitch a long or a short and dig into all the details. Some of the, I'll, I'll be honest, some of these presentations that are given, they're fantastic. And um, they get to pitch these live, and they get feedback from not just a professor, but industry executive-level professionals, so CEOs of investment firms private equity, chief strategist, and receive real-life feedback. Um, and so, quite frankly, it really serves as a launch pad um, for the next generation of financial leaders, right? People that are interested in our industry and finance investment world, and uh, they, they come and compete with the very best uh, across the globe and see how they stack up and then receive feedback in real time, like I said, and it's been it's been excellent. I've I've spoke to not only just participants. When are we going to hear about the stocks, Brad? When are we going <laughs> to? When are we? Because I want to know who who's the winner and what's the stock idea. I'd love to have that kid on my show. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So the actual investment undergraduate conference sponsored by David Kula Foundation is underway as we speak. So the final rounds are going to be held throughout today. At the very end of the day, they are going to pick a first, second, and third, and they're they're all over the board. Um, as far as the different companies that are chosen. But it's not just the competition. Is that great? It is. But during the entire event, David's able to bring together um, Federal Reserve officials. As you guys mentioned previously, your Bloomberg's very own Kathleen Hayes is going to be going live very shortly with Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas President Robert Kaplan. Um, later on in the day, we have an executive member of Mainstay Capital's team, Michael Braza, will be interviewing and have a fireside chat with Melody Hobson. President, co-CEO of Aerial Investments, board chair of Starbucks, on the J.P. Morgan board, many, many other roles. Um, but it's able to – and there's question and answer sessions. These aren't just watching people you know, on TV or on YouTube interacting directly with these officials that, quite frankly, it energizes a 18-, 19-, 20-year-old. And my, my, myself, uh, at, at my age, in my role, I'm very excited to be a part of it. Um, I can only imagine as a young uh, – What are you, like 25, you know, 26? <laughs> just you know double it but uh as a 18 19 20 year old right to be able to hear from somebody in those different roles uh it really just serves as a launch pad um, to project and because let's face it these kids right are the next people in our industry in the yep. media industry uh running hedge funds investment companies uh and the like so very excited all right brad so uh, obviously this year is different for all of us here uh your conference this year is virtual Tell us about some of the, you know, how that's going. Yeah, it is. So, obviously, we it, this is an annual event, and David's actually been putting on and involved heavily with student investment conferences for the better part of a decade. It's usually always in person, obviously, with everything going on uh, throughout the country, especially here in Michigan. Um, it is a virtual event, but quite frankly, it's been able to attract even more uh, participation. We have a, a group joining us from the Republic of Kazakhstan. We have multiple Canadian uh, groups and competitors that are joining. So it's nice. Um, you know, I think we're all getting more acclimated to Zoom or to a, a, a virtual interaction than we were maybe a year or so ago. Um, so we're not going to let anything slow us down. Engage is going to march forward. Have you seen any of the 
pitches so far? Has anything moved you? Uh, you know what? Here's honestly what's moved the the teams are made up of four or five individuals, but these are the spokespersons for their respective college. There are stock pitch clubs and finance clubs, groups of 20, 30, 40, 50 on college campuses spread across America, some of the best and brightest minds. There's a 20 to 30 slide presentation. Quite frankly, even at my age and, and uh, at my experience level, some of these things are way over my head. Uh, many of the speakers sometimes, and even President Kaplan will remark, hey, those were fantastic questions. I was, I was shocked and surprised, right? Or um, it serves as a networking event. To be honest, many of these students can obtain maybe an in or an internship or something moving forward because they're talking with uh, the best and the brightest in our industry. Hey, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that, and uh, best of luck for a good conference today. Brad Repke, Senior Wealth Advisor at Mainstay Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.